0: Good evening. New York is reopening in two weeks, says Governor Cuomo. But is it a good idea? Trump's continuing election fraud delusion. A notorious politician from the Lower East Side gets out of jail after a year. Will other people over 55 get a shot to escape jail due to the COVID pandemic? And the Haymarket tragedy and the history of May Day. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 4th. 2021, Governor Andrew Cuomo stunned Broadway announcing he was lifting all the state's capacity restrictions on May 19th in restaurants, concert halls, bars, museums and theaters, including the Times Square Theater District. The governor spoke yesterday.
1: What we've agreed on a regionally coordinated basis, beginning Wednesday, May 19th, most capacity restrictions will end across the tri-state area. That includes retail stores, food services, gyms, fitness centers, amusement and family entertainment, hair salons, barber shops, offices, etc. No capacity, restrictions on all of those activities. Uh, so uh, museums, theaters, Broadway, retail. Shops Now, they may make their own economic decision as to when they need to reopen because they can have critical mass. We're talking to Broadway offices also. Outdoor large stadiums go to 33% on May 19th. The Mets, this is the Yankees, goes to 33%.
0: Day has little to do with reality since Broadway shows need months of preparation before a play can be staged. Previously, the theaters have said that next fall is a more realistic timetable for reopening Broadway, one of New York's greatest tourist attractions. Meanwhile, the number of coronavirus cases continues to decline statewide as seven million New Yorkers have become fully vaccinated. Not everyone is happy, though, with the government's statement. Mayor Bill de Blasio had earlier said July 1st for a New York reopening, although city workers were required to return to working in their offices yesterday. And the governor's decision was apparently made. Made without consultation. Public advocate Jumani Williams says both leaders, that's de Blasio and Cuomo, have failed New Yorkers by sowing confusion.
2: The biggest problem is one that we've seen throughout this, and that's from infection to injection. Um, just the lack of cohesive message. I think that's been something that we had a control over and we just blew it. And a lot of that has to do with our executives. Uh, and I think they're both to blame, but I really think a lot of times um, Cuomo takes a, takes a bigger part of that blame. And there was a way to handle this, even if he didn't like the way the mayor announced it. The answer to that is not just coming in and try to bigfoot like you always do, because you get to show how much power you have, but that doesn't put the best interests of the people of the city and the state in focus. And so now people are confused. I do think that the mayor's goal of trying to reopen in July was a better one as long as we reassess along the way. I think jump starting that in you know, two weeks, uh roughly, is not the best idea. And it's just a risk we don't need to take. It's about managing risk. It can go well or it can be catastrophic. Being that we don't have to take that risk, why do it? Uh and also, you know, to that to the city side, the mayor pushing folks back in, uh starting I believe today, I think was a little rushed as well. We should have slow that down stagger it a little bit and make sure people understand what's going on how feeling safe sometimes is just as important as actually being safe and so you can actually be safe and not feel safe and it can sometimes be just as damaging and so we want to make sure that people understand what we're doing why we're doing it so they can come back feel safe and be productive in the work that needs to get done
0: Well, they keep saying it's the data and it's the science, and yet I hear a different message from uh, the CDC when they speak. The governor has been proven, if people kind of look
2: into it, what's wrong on so many issues of how slowly... He shut down, how slowly he moved to close down the state to the the nursing homes, the decisions around how we rolled out the vaccines. He's just been wrong on so many issues. Even though he wrote a book on leadership in the middle of the pandemic, I don't think it's probably worth the paper it's on. Because we really did a bad job here, and we were the epicenter of the epicenter for quite some time. And even when we were doing the vaccines, we had some of the highest rates of the virus going around in the country. So, you know, he hasn't provided the best leadership. And it's disappointing. It looks like he's just using the same playbook of the
0: most important thing is ego and big footing. Any ideas on how the next mayor should handle this when they take over? Because they'll be the ones inheriting all this. I always lean
2: toward, as you mentioned, caution. The risks are always going to be there. And I think people understand risks. The next mayor will just take some more time to explain the measured risks that we're taking while we're taking it. Have you endorsed? I have not endorsed yet, no.
0: What do you think of the whole Scott Stringer thing?
2: It's not a good space to be in. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people say some different things from Betsy Gottbaum to other folks. And you have to be in a space where you're, you believe women. You also want to be in a space where you're saying, let's try to find a way so that people feel they were heard as well in terms of uh, whatever process we want to go through.
0: It might be some politics.
2: It's a difficult space. Yeah, yeah. You know, politics is what politics is. At minimum, like you can say there was perhaps, you can't say there was poor judgment and things that happened, but it's a tough space to be in. But you have to do both. You have to believe women and you have to
0: allow a process to play out for my neighborhood here in the lower east side at one point we had the police were very tough down here and then there was some incidents you might have heard of and then the police backed off and they brought in other people to uh to get you know convince people to wear masks and things like that in the park and then more recently we had a large gathering where now the parks department is jumping in and saying you can't have any more gatherings in the park and that's causing a lot of problems and in light of a very confusing situation we were just discussing. Well,
2: part of it I would blame, uh, you know, on our executive leadership. And again, what Cuomo did here is just irresponsible. It's immature and it's irresponsible. And so the, the, the mixed messaging that folks are hearing does not help with those situations. Now, we do know, and as, as I said, even on the federal level, that there is some additional freedoms that can happen when we're outside. And we're learning and have learned how this disease spread, and outside provides more safety, especially if you're socially distanced. But again, what we need is a concise message, because it's hard to ask people to follow something without a concise message. And even worse, if you're trying to get the police department to enforce something, what we saw that it wasn't enforced equitably, but on top of that, you're trying to get them to enforce something that's not even clear. The governor's last press conference was just the height of immature responsibility. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think you had asked about the, the uh, you know, the strength. And the only thing I would say is, obviously, we want to look at judgment. And at minimum, it's
0: always poor judgment to put supporting it in a difficult position. So we'll just add that. Jumani Williams, he got put in a difficult position by Scott Stringer. Governor Cuomo's order comes with a big caution sign. The state will still have to follow CDC guidelines mandating six feet of social distancing. And in related news, mayoral candidate Scott Stringer tells New York One the sexual assault allegations that have rocked his campaign are taking their toll on his family. Stringer is facing sexual harassment allegations from Jean Kim, who claims he groped and kissed her without consent during her time as an intern for his 2001 campaign for public advocate. She said at the time he offered to make her a neighborhood Democratic Party leader if she proved her loyalty to him. She has remained close to politics and is now a lobbyist. But Stringer said the allegations are simply not true, starting with the fact that Kim was never an intern. He said she was 30 years old at the time and volunteered at the local Democratic club. And in Washington, President Joe Biden today promised to deliver at least one COVID vaccination shot to 70 percent of adult Americans by July 4th. Demand for vaccines has dropped off markedly nationwide as so-called vaccine hesitancy has taken root after an initial surge of vaccinations. You do need to get vaccinated, Biden said from the White House. Already, 56 percent of American adults have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine and nearly 105 million are fully vaccinated. In international news, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has missed the midnight deadline for putting together a new coalition government, raising the possibility that Netanyahu's Likud party could be pushed into the opposition for the first time in 12 years. While Netanyahu won't be forced out as Prime Minister immediately, he suddenly faces a serious threat to his rule. Netanyahu has been facing corruption charges of fraud and bribery in a series of scandals. The trial has featured embarrassing testimony accusing the Prime Minister Minister of Trading Favors with a powerful media mogul, Nanyahu, denies the charges. And in news concerning Central America and corruption, Vice President Kamala Harris gave a speech today to the Conference on the Americas. She says that tackling corruption will be key to stemming the flow of migrants from the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico, and warns that there will be little or no progress until the issue is addressed.
3: In the Northern Triangle, corruption prevents us from creating the conditions on the ground to best attract investment. In fact, the global cost of corruption is as much as 5% of the world's GDP. 5%. Our administration is implementing a comprehensive strategy with governments and international institutions, the private sector, foundations, and community organizations. The idea here is that our work will be coordinated and that every sector will have a role to play. Last Tuesday, I had a virtual meeting with a group of long-standing community leaders in Guatemala. They talked about the work they have been doing to feed people, to house people, to find people jobs, all while taking on relentless corruption. They are committed to building a better life for all of those people they serve.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris, the impact of climate change on Central America has been as severe as corruption. Five years of droughts have disrupted farming in the region. A 2018 World Bank report found that as many as 2 million people in Central America and Mexico, approximately 1 percent of the population, could be displaced from their homes by the year 2050, primarily due to drought and increasing extreme flood events. I wonder if the wall will be tall enough when those days come. The Internet news site Slate reports a dubious hand recount in Arizona of 2.1 million ballots cast for the 2020 presidential and U.S. Senate elections is underway. In November, President Joe Biden won the county with 50.3 percent of the vote, as did Democratic Senator Mark Kelly with 51.9 percent of the vote. Now, six months after the election, Arizona's Republican-controlled state legislature has ordered a highly unusual audit, fueled by unsubstantiated accusations of fraud in the 2020 vote count from former President Donald Trump and other conservative figures. The Arizona legislature has hired a Florida-based cybersecurity company called Cyber Ninjas to lead the recount that's been implicated that company has been implicated in the stop the steal conspiracy theories in the run-up to the january 6th Capitol invasion president trump has been banned permanently from twitter and facebook is expected to rule soon on trump's fate on their platform but that didn't stop a cell phone video of trump giving a speech last wednesday at mar-a-lago where he said because of the arizona recount he has a fighting chance to unseat biden I wouldn't be surprised if they found thousands and
4: thousands and thousands of votes. So we're going to watch that very closely. And after that, you'll watch Pennsylvania and you'll watch Georgia and you're going to watch Michigan and uh, Wisconsin and you're watching New Hampshire. They found a lot of votes up in New Hampshire just now. you so bad because this was a rigged election. Everybody knows it. And we're going to be, uh, we're going to be watching it very closely. But start off by you just take a look. It's on. It's on closed circuit. I guess it's on all over the place because everyone's talking about yesterday front page of the New York Times. They didn't want to write it, but that's because they thought they were going to have a negative uh, decision. That the judge gave them, gave us a
0: positive decision. And as former President Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago After Biden won by more than 7 million votes and a large share of electoral votes, a campaign was launched by Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, to try and overturn the votes in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and other swing states. More than 50 lawsuits brought by the Trump campaign were roundly rejected, leading to the assault on the Capitol and continuing attempts to overturn the election. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Closer to home – Advocates in Albany have been calling for lawmakers to pass several bills to uniquely address the pandemic. Elder parole would allow the state parole board to evaluate for potential release people aged 55 and older in state prisons or who have served or done more than 15 years. I don't like to use the word served. Fair and timely parole would reform parole reviews for prisoners who are already eligible for release. There are thousands of people in New York prisons who'd be affected by the bills if they became law. Meanwhile, one of the city's most notorious elder prisoners, and we're going to come back here to New York City, is former New York State Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver. He's been released from federal prison early, and he's at home. His release may be a sign of discrimination in COVID release policies between New York State and the more expansive federal COVID laws. Silver was held in, in a federal prison, as I just said. He will serve the remainder of his six-and-a-half-year sentence on federal corruption charges under home confinement. The once-powerful Democrat was first convicted in 2015 under two schemes to use his office for personal gain. The 77-year-old Silver became eligible for release under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security, or CARES Act, which calls for reducing the federal prison population to avoid the spread of coronavirus. Tom Robbins has been an investigative journalist in residence at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He's been a columnist and staff writer at The Village Voice, The New York Daily News and The New York Observer. And he has a show here on WBAI every Monday at 5 p.m. called Deadline New York City, Tales of New York from a Veteran Reporter. He spoke about the corruption charge never leveled on Solder, his war on the poor of the Lower East Side.
4: What he was found guilty of was basically using his influence as Speaker of the Assembly to shake down real estate developers and, and others into giving him business that he did through his law firm. He did it to the tune of several million dollars. Information at his trial showed that it was sort of standard operating procedure when someone appeared before Sheldon Silver asking for something, he would suggest, well, you know, maybe you could use my law firm for that. And he made a lot of money. For Lower East Sidebeat, I have always thought that Sheldon Silver's worst crime was one he was never charged with, which was theft of democracy in the area south of Houston Street, that huge swath on Delancey Street where it was kept vacant for more than 30 years. It was called the Seward Park Urban Renewal Area. And back in the 60s and 70s, it was cleared by Robert Moses to make way for what was going to be an expressway. And a lot of Latino and other low-income people lost their homes and were never allowed to come back because Shelly Silver essentially did not want potential voters in that district that might not be for him and might upset his local power base there in the Seward Park houses along Grand Street. That was not a charged crime, of course, but his reputation as a political shark was such that I don't think a lot of people shed any tears when he was convicted. And I imagine that there's a few people who feel that even though he's 77 years old, getting out after less than a year on a six and a half year sentence is pretty darn
0: lucky and maybe undeserved. Is he representative of politics on the Lower East Side?
4: He had no political clout directly in the what you're calling Alphabet City, you know, Lower East Side, of the area north of Houston and uh, east of First Avenue. That was that was not his political turf. It was actually that's where the basically the opposition to him was for for many years. But the area south of that, yeah, you know, he was the single most powerful figure, and he operated in, I think, a very cynical, political, patronage-style, old-school operation where he was able to do favors and uh, punish his enemies. The area certainly is not what it was, even in Shelley's time. It's changed, I think, in terms of the makeup. And now that there's a rent up and the new buildings that have arisen in that old strip on, on Delancey Street, all those huge new high rises that have finally been built there. It's much more integrated, certainly than Shelley Silver ever wanted it to be.
0: Now some of those same buildings are involved in progressive causes and stuff like that. It-
4: yeah, let's just say I don't think Shelley Silver could win any elections right now if he was the one. Yeah. And that's not just because of his conviction, it's because, as you say, it's changed. You know, a lot of those co ops have gone market rate. And some of the people buying into them are very different from that, you know, older Orthodox population you're talking about.
0: And that's Tom Robbins. He's been an investigative journalist in residence at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism and a columnist and staff writer at the Village Voice, the New York Daily News and the New York Observer. He has a program every Monday at 5 p.m. here on WBAI, Deadline NYC, Tales of New York from a Veteran Reporter. And a peaceful labor demonstration, a call for a legal limit on the length of a workday, a police raid, a bomb explodes, seven police are killed, and eight labor leaders are arrested and ordered executed. Four are eventually hung, two have their sentences commuted to life, and another commits suicide in jail. The eighth is sentenced to 15 years in prison. Yet only two of the defendants were actually at the rally. It all began on May 4, 1886, although no one knew who threw the bomb, Labor organizers, all known anarchists, were blamed in an atmosphere of public rage against foreign-born workers, anarchists, and union organizers. Labor activist Lucy Parsons, whose husband, Albert Parsons, was one of the four killed, won international support in a campaign to free them and get them a new trial. After the executions, Parsons spearheaded a movement to exonerate the Haymarket martyrs. In 1893, after the four were hanged, the remaining defendants were pardoned by Illinois Governor Peter Altgeld. Historians generally credit the tragedy as an inflection point leading to the international celebration we now know as May Day. On this Saturday, May Day was celebrated all over the world. In Athens, thousands protested following social distance protocols while hundreds were arrested in Turkey, marching in defiance of the country's authoritarian president. There were even May Day protests in Hong Kong held by pro-democracy advocates battling the self-proclaimed communist regime in Beijing, while in Moscow, the annual celebration in Red Square was canceled by COVID. In New York City, hundreds gathered in the sunshine in Union Square Park on Saturday to celebrate working-class history and build a new and radical labor movement. The former candidate for president from the Workers' World Party, Socialist Organization, is Monica Moorhead.
5: This is uh, International Workers' Day, and we feel it's very, very important to remember the important lessons of uh, International Workers' Day that really began in the U.S., but it's mainly commemorated around the world. And we're trying to continue to revive May Day here, which was really all about workers, especially immigrant workers, mainly from East from Europe, who were struggling for the eight-hour day because conditions back then were so horrendous where workers were working 10 to 16 hours a day, no rights, very low wages. Um, it was just real. The bosses were treating them like part of the machinery in order to make profits and so this is you know and, and so a lot of these same conditions are happening today worldwide you know especially with you know the low wages the gig workers sex workers a lot of workers who are invisible right now we want to bring them out of the shadows as migrant workers young black people who are being victimized by police violence and terror. This is a new working class on a global scale. And we want to recognize what the working class looks like today and that the working class has a right, despite any borders, beyond borders, to organize themselves, to struggle against exploitation, to struggle against racism and white supremacy. All these issues are workers' issues. It's not just organizing for better wages and so forth, which is very important. But you have to also struggle around political issues.
0: Monica Moorhead is the former candidate for president from the Workers' World Party. There is now a day in Chicago commemorating the Haymarket tragedy, and there's a statue commemorating the executed labor leaders. They never did find the person responsible for the bomb, although historians have speculated it was the brother of one of the people who were there to rally. But nobody really knows for sure. We probably never will. And finally, nothing like a prominent life in public service to help your other career as a romance novelist. At least that's the case for Georgia voting rights activists and former candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams. Berkeley, a Penguin Random House imprint, announced today it had acquired rights to three out-of-print novels by Abrams that she had written under the name Selena Montgomery and will begin reissuing the books, Rules of Engagement, The Art of Desire, and Power of Persuasion in 2022. Abrams' other books include the nonfiction releases Our Time Is Now and Minority Leader. Her legal thriller, While Justice Sleeps, comes out next week. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.